Hi, I'm Forrest Dumas. I'm a student here at Colorado Mesa University. The subject of my interview today is Professor John Seabach, a professor in North American Archaeology at uh, Colorado Mesa University, the school which I'm attending. So, Professor Seabach, mind telling me a little bit about yourself? Um, what do you want to know? I'm at, I'm, so, yes, I'm an I'm associate professor of archaeology here at CMU. Um, I've taught at CMU for eight years and um, came here as, uh, as a, an archaeologist who was primarily interested in the Paleo-Indian period of uh, North American prehistory. So talking about people who lived here during the last Ice Age up until the early Holocene. And in my career at CMU, I have gotten away from my Paleo-Indian focus and have focused more on the historic side of, Native, of the Native American experience here in Western Colorado, specifically um, by looking at or researching the um, Indian Education Service and it, the boarding schools, the residential boarding schools associated with it, of which uh, Grand Junction hosted one, um, the Teller Institute or Grand Junction Indian School uh, from the late 1880s to the early 19s. So um, I've done a lot of stuff here. <laughs> <laughs> Just for uh, my to clarify the difference between prehistoric and historic. Um, well, I mean, t classically, right, prehistory is the time period before writing, before people wrote uh, down their experiences. But again, that, uh, that kind of classic definition or classical definition um, then connotes that people that weren't writing things down didn't have history or were before, you know, history in some way. And we know that human groups don't operate like that. All human groups have histories. Um, it's just that we have to access them in different ways. And archaeology is the way we access the periods of time that were that occurred before people wrote stuff down. So um, for me, especially as an archaeologist, the divide is, um, I wouldn't say it's unimportant, but it's not, um, it's not of profound importance because as an archaeologist, I look at material culture and material culture occurs in the so-called prehistoric times versus um, historic times as well, right? We all, his, Historic people, including ourselves, have all kinds of material culture that archaeologists can study. Furthermore, uh, when it you know, when going back to, to speaking about how prehistory connotes that these people exist outside of time in some way or, you know, aren't um, that there's a, a, a that they're lacking in history because they weren't writing things down. That can get really dangerous and really dicey when talking about um, uh, indigenous cultures uh, for whom, um, you know, the, the cultures are based on oral historic uh, accounts of their undertakings, their, their own histories, etc. And so privileging the written word over oral history is also, there's some, um, there's some couched uh, judgments in there about the achievements of indigenous peoples that we need to get rid of. Got it. The subject we're going to be talking about today is the Teller Institute, which is a distinctively historical subject. Mm -hmm. It was a boarding school for Native Americans that was primarily structured to not only deprive them of their culture, mm -hmm. but to provide Grand Junction with a perpetual cheap labor force mm -hmm. with its sub 
par educational standards. What are your thoughts on the Institute and its various sister schools? Well, I think the way that you characterize it um, is both good and bad um, in, in some respects. Um, you know, you have to contextualize Indian education um, in the, you know, in its time, in its place. And in 1880s and uh, early 20th century North America, uh, the idea was that um, America, as you might hear in, in certain circles today, is um, supposedly a, a melting pot, right? A gigantic melting pot. And how that actually played out was that um, people who came to this country were supposed to assimilate into American ways of doing things, which, you know, when you look into the history of the country is actually kind of, you know, British ways of doing things as long as we didn't have a king. Um, so um, America, the idea was that there was this uh, sort of, um, uh, you know, everyone came together to be free and to be equal and to, you know, uh, pursue life, liberty, and the, you know, and happiness. But um, in the reality, as we all know, um, people were not considered equal. And some of those who were considered to be the least equal were the original inhabitants of the continent, um, the American Indian peoples, um, American Indian nations. And so in the time, it was thought, growing out of this idea of assimilation, it was thought that American Indian ideals, morals, behaviors, values, etc., were so antithetical to the American experiment, to the Euro-American experiment, that one thing that, that was necessary in order to achieve this assimilation would be to um, essentially re-educate Indian children. Um, that is to say, take them from their homes and um, set them up in these boarding schools where they would forget or you know, systematically forget Indian ways of being and seeing the world and uh, have that replaced with Euro-American values and ways of seeing the world. And so the schools were designed um, along three tracks. One was to um, you know, provide the basic education that, that, um, that sort of undergirds American educational ideas of reading, writing, and arithmetic. But that second piece, as you mentioned, was really, really important, and that was the um, basically the ethnocidal campaign to, to rid the continent of Indian ways of being uh, in favor of American ways of, of being. And then that third component is, as you said, um, especially in, in uh, some of the later years of the boarding schools, there, they were a source of cheap labor uh, for the communities that hosted them. Here in Grand Junction, the kids that were going to Teller uh, were sent out into the community to um, earn money doing various jobs around, you know, blacksmithing, orchard keeping, ranching, those kinds of things. So um, there was a source of cheap labor at the school. And actually, that was uh, one of the reasons why um, people criticized the boarding schools so much is um, they, they, you know, they were saying that essentially they're taking advantage of these children. Uh, by putting them to work. So it's a, they were interesting um, social institutions. I don't mean interesting in a, a, a benign way. I mean, or I mean, I do mean interesting in a benign way rather than, you know, um, oh, what a curiosity because um, these places were places of ethnocide and, and need to be remembered as such. Got it. 
Earlier, you raised an interesting point that Native American, the Native American experience was seen as the antithesis of the, yeah. of the American expe, uh, experience. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, when you consider sort of American, you know, sort of first principles American values and consider some of the things that, um, that American Indian peoples uh, sort of I mean, I certainly can't speak for all American Indian peoples. There's, there's, it's impossible to generalize with so many hundreds of different nations. Um, but uh, if I was allowed to generalize, you know, sort of um, grossly, shall we say, um, Americans and the British that came before them or the Western Europeans that came before them are sharply attuned to private property. And we can see that immediately being set up, you know, uh, during the colonial era. The Spanish were, you know, were setting up economiendas and all these things, you know, these private landowners, which would then employ uh, local indigenous peoples. And America or North America was very much the same, where British landed gentry came and set up their own plantations here. Um, so the, you know, one of the immediate changes to the landscape was the imposition of private boundaries and fencing and things of that nature. And to the American Indian, <clears throat> you know, this was um, ridiculous. Uh, all things, again, grossly generalizing, all things were held as part of the public good and were part of the commons. And to think that someone could privately own a certain patch of land is... Um, is ridiculous. It's just patently ridiculous. So if you have a people who are holding enormous amounts of land, right, as the as early Americans saw it, right, that these American Indian peoples are holding enormous amounts of land and, you know, this isn't a direct quote, I don't have a direct quote in front of me, but aren't using it properly. That is to say, holding it in common or in a, in a communal way rather than in a private way and aren't farming it, aren't developing it, aren't doing any of these things that, that we think of when we think of our own private properties, um, then how could you, how could that stand in a country that was being divided up by landed peoples, you know, where they were drawing their squares on the land saying, I own this, you don't. If there's a, you know, a huge part of the Great Plains that, uh, hundreds if not thousands of people own together that just can't be in an america um that in the america that was being set up so um just that one value alone was enough to um <clears throat> to set euro-american teeth you know chattering that there should be um, what would essentially be defined eventually as communism and can't have that interesting so there's a distinct there's a distinct difference between the new world and the old world in regards to property ownership and absolutely. you can see the hand of feudalism still hanging on 100 percent, absolutely that's yeah. that's fascinating absolutely. all right now back to the teller institute what was your archaeological for work focused around i understand that you were searching for the grave site but what else were you working with well that's pretty much it because the big bugaboo or the big issue at teller is um that there over the course of the life of the school there were people buried in a school cemetery and the location of that school cemetery um has been lost over the years and so um 
in 2016, when the state of Colorado decided that the property that the Teller School used to be on would be sold, um, sold into private hands, um, the search was on or, or it became imperative that we find the cemetery so that the cemetery could be removed from that sale and that the proper things could be done for that cemetery, either the bodies uh, or the cemetery itself um, fenced off and commemorated, or depending on the wishes of the Native nations involved, uh, the bodies exhumed and returned to the homes of their, of their ancestors or of their descendants, I should say. Um, so um, it was really important that we find that cemetery and of course, one of the ways to do that would be to conduct archaeological field work. So um, my project, or when I was working on this project, it was twofold. There was um, a lot of archival background research that I did. And then ideally, it would have grown into archaeological work to try to find the cemetery. Um, the way that all of that worked out politically, History Colorado uh, is did and is taking care of the archaeological side of things. Um, and so they're the ones working out there or have worked out there trying to find that cemetery. So my actual archaeological work in terms of survey or groundwork of any kind consisted literally of only one day, well, one and a half days of cadaver dog use um, trying to find um, the cemetery on some of the, the property out there, which was ultimately inconclusive. So I really didn't do a whole lot of field work, well, hardly any field work at all um, in attempting to find the cemetery. And so um, really, again, like I said, that's that's been up to History Colorado. Uh, mind telling us about the effectivity of cadaver dogs and why the results were inconclusive? Well, again, it's really tough to say. There's a lot of factors that went into this. <clears throat> um, the first factor is just uh, the conditions of the time. Um, basically what cadaver dogs are doing is they're smelling, they are seeking through smell the products of decay, particularly um, the scent of cadaverine, which is the, the odors and the substances that are produced as part of natural decomposition of, um, of carbon-based life forms like ourselves. And um, so that's what they're, that's what they're seeking. The thing about it is, is that the longer a body is left to decompose, the less and less cadaverine there is in the, um, in the general area. Add to that the fact that if you're seeking a cemetery, you're having to um, figure out where the cadaverine is coming from if it is coming from six feet, four to six feet under the ground. So it's having to percolate up through the ground matrix to the surface of the area for the dogs to smell in the first place. And so soil conditions, weather conditions, et cetera, can enhance or retard the, um, or diminish, I should say, the, the ability of the dogs to, to smell that cadaverine. And um, when we were out there, it was in early April of 2018, I believe. I believe it was 2018. And um, it, the ground was still frozen or was still frozen just like, just a few inches underneath the present ground surface. So it was very, very difficult for the dogs to actually perceive any cadaverine because the cadaverine, what was left, seen as how the last burial out in that cemetery was um, 
would have been 1910, 1910 or 19, yeah, 1909, sorry, 1909. Um, there's hardly any left. You add to that, that I was able to get this cadaver dog work done for free if I used dogs that were still um, young cadaver dogs, right? Like they'd been through their training, they know what they're doing, but they had not been out on very many actual sites before. Um, so those are the dogs I was able to use. And so given the relative inexperience of the dogs themselves, the weather conditions and the age of the graves, it's a really, really difficult ask to try to find these historic graves through cadaver dog work. Ah, that's unfortunate. Um, uh, since, since there was a grave site that was undocumented or, well, they didn't bother putting it on a map, um, it was known that the school had a lot of health problems with diseases like tuberculosis, trachoma. Mm -hmm. The school was fairly infamous for its poor health conditions. Mm -hmm. Do you think they were covering up a lot of the students that passed away there? That's a really good question. I don't think, given the, the historic documents we have at our disposal, I don't think you can make that argument. It's certainly um, a possibility. The only way, again, to figure it out would be to find the cemetery. And if there are more burials, more graves in the cemetery, then we have records for that we know that, well, again, we can't say that it was a, a, a cover-up, but, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A, um, a concerted effort to cover up what was happening out there, as much as it might have been that um, the Grand Junction News or the Grand Junction Daily Sentinel just didn't feel like publishing uh, the notice. So it's, it's hard to tell, but... Yeah, there was a lot of disease. Um, some of the written or published reports on the school indicate that, um, that diets were poor uh, and disease was rampant. Um, a lot of the disease was, there was tubercular, but there was also, um, uh, like you said, trachoma, which is a disease of the eye. Uh, there were various injuries uh, and things that happened there. But the school maintained its own infirmary, so it took care of things in-house. They had a doctor on staff. Um, so, and yeah, it was, it was, a, it was interesting from a, from a medical anthropological perspective. Another aspect of the school was that if the students were too sick, they'd often send them back to the tribe and let Correct. them take care of it. Correct, yes. And there are um, some documents where uh, the superintendents of the time are petitioning the Indian Education Service or the Bureau of Indian Affairs for money to send students back home. But, wow. Mm -hmm. What do you think the budgets were of this institute if they were petitioning just to give the kids a bus ride back? Um, well, they would be put on a train. I know, but uh, just speaking figuratively. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, that's a really interesting question. I do have uh, pictures taken of... Um, some of the budget documents, but I don't know that I've ever seen a budget that says this is your appropriation for this year. Um, it probably is. I just can't remember it off the top of my head in the uh, records of the Commission of Indian Affairs where they actually did appropriate funds to, you know, the education versus, uh, you know, the Indian agents or something like that. But um, again, off the top of my head, I don't remember the numbers. Got it. Now, 
we've all heard that the project came to a poor end with the land being sold, which put an end to any further archaeological work. Why did they sell it, and do you agree mm. with the decision? Well, I mean, you're, you're kind of misspeaking there. Uh, they did decide the land would be sold, but what, oh. ha what has to happen first is that either the cemetery needs to be found or we need to conclusively find that the cemetery is not on the land that is being sold. Got right? it. And the thing about it is, is that the land is comprised or three different landowners hold the old property. One is the Colorado Department of Human Services. Um, and that's that they're the ones that hold the main part of the old uh, teller school, including the last remaining historic buildings. Um, but then there's also the Colorado Department of Veterans Affairs, who own a small portion of the land on which they built the present day armory. And then the third landowner is CMU, who owns a small portion of land that is um, currently in alfalfa production. So three different landowners. And to date, as far as I know, to date, the only ground penetrating radar work or things that have been done have been on the Colorado Department of Human Services property. And so again, there are still two other parts of that property to, to search or that need to be searched. But with regard to the legislation that the Colorado Department of Human Services sell their portion, right? I think that part is in the clear. I think, I don't know. Um, Got it. Because the final report has not been published. So, um, so with regard to the sale, as long as the cemetery is not there, I think, um, you know, according to the tenets of the legislation, I think that it's, you know, it's fine to sell, right? Got it. In terms of business and in terms of what the state of Colorado wants to do. Morally, I believe it is wrong to sell the property. Agreed. And that's for the original reason or the original agreement made by the state of Colorado with the federal government stated that they would never sell the property. Um, and so Colorado agreed to it. So the fact that the state is still going to try to get rid of the property um, and let's be honest, right, make money on the property is, um, I think it's morally indefensible, frankly. I think they should be held to account for their original agreement to never sell the property. And the second part of that agreement was that any services given by whatever is on that property would be given free of charge to Native peoples. I think that, um, you know, if the state of Colorado wants to repurpose those buildings, uh, and offer things, right, that they also have a moral compunction to offer those services or whatever they do free to American Indian peoples, right? Whether they want to say it's American Indian peoples, you know, only of the Ute nations here in Colorado, whether they want to say it's registered or tribally enrolled or in people who are listed on tribal enrollments, whatever it is, right, like they still owe it to the Native people um, and their, you know, to the descendants of the Native people that they tried to um, de-culture, right? <laughs> Good term. <laughs> that um, they still owe it to them. And so again, it may be legally correct. It's probably not even that, frankly, since the original agreement said they would never sell it. But, you know, 
110 years of legal wrangling can get you pretty much anything you want. Um, so I still don't think it's the morally correct thing for them to do. Agreed. And I think, and furthermore, if they do sell the property, I think the money that they get should be should just go back to Native communities, <laughs> or like should be you know given straight to um, Colorado Department of Human Services, Tribal Services. You yeah. Know? Like, do not pass go. Do not make any interest on it. Like, just you know, have that money fund things in Native communities. But um, yeah, you know. I personally, if I had my druthers, I would prefer that the state um, salvage at least one of the two historic homes that are at the southern edge of the CDHS property and turn one of those into an interpretive center of some kind or um, uh, some kind of thing where uh, Native communities, Native elders, etc. can um, provide Docu not documentation, but provide interpretation about how these boarding schools affected modern Native communities. And then have also, you know, just like a basic history of the school and the basic history of early Grand Junction and things like that. So that we don't forget, right? Because here's the, here's the thing. If the CDHS sells the property, Colorado Department of Human Services sells the property outright, and then whoever buys the property comes in and tears all the buildings down, then we're only completing the forget the the fact that we have forgotten about the presence of this school at the outset, right? And if we continue to allow ourselves to forget, then what good is history? That's in that's an interesting point because they found King Richard the Third's body in a parking, in a parking lot. lot. Yeah. So it's it's not exactly a a classically modern thing for things to be built over what came before that's right. actually a distinctive part of human history yeah right i mean that's the thing too is you know the modern the modern regional center that's out there all the buildings from the original indian school well well this is there's some controversy on what what out there is actually historic or not but um have been torn down you know, and the last one was torn down in the 1960s. And so, like, the original buildings are all gone for the most part. And so, you know, it is true that humans basically knock down other stuff. But this is a special case. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is a special case because this is a very particular moment in American history that um, not a whole lot of people know about. And so the opportunity we have as a state as a people to one educate the populace and to make reparations of some kind even if they are just moral reparations right um to native communities we have a golden opportunity here and my fear is that we're just going to let it slip away yeah that's unfortunate because where are they just going to build out there another walmart or kmart <laughs> No idea. Yeah. yeah. And then plus it's an area that's weirdly zoned because there's residential right across the street uh, from the Indian school, but then there's also commercial. And then um, CMU's portion is designated as agricultural, but they have the electric lineman school out on one part. So there's also this other like non-for-profit non educational aspect to it. And so if they sell all that land, then there's the armory, 
right? So what are they going to put out there if they sell it? It just It's a very odd place, the way that county and city zoning has grown up since then. Yeah. In my personal opinion, I can't really see the appeal of building anything out there. I mean, maybe another shopping outlet, but that's about it. For what, though? Exactly. You know? But the fact of the matter is, too, is like in the last few years, they've built that Maverick out there on on, uh, 29 and D Road, and then that Golden Gate convenience store now that's right uh, catty corner from from the Maverick. So, you know, so yeah, it is going to be a retail oriented area, but like, you know, I don't think city market wants that land. I don't think they're going to build a new city market (laughs) out there. So I don't, you know, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Uh, Going forward, how should we remember the Teller Institute and why it's important in history? It's like I said, it represents a very very crucial moment in U.S. Indian nation relations, right? Um, it is a, it is emblematic of attitudes that were taken about American Indian societies in the early periods, right? Post-Civil War, post-Reconstruction periods of American history. So, you know, America is coming out of this uh, very tragic set of events where we're trying to reconstruct literally the country. Right. And then out of that moment says, well, everybody needs to be American and everybody needs this. And, and, you know, and that included American Indian peoples who, by the way, at the time were not even citizens of the country. Right. They didn't achieve citizenship or they weren't given citizenship until the 1920s. So um, so there's this really interesting moment, historically interesting moment in those relations um, that is very, um, it's worthy of commemoration from an American historical perspective. But the more important part, the part that we do need to remember is the simple fact that these um, ethnocide, these, these, these institutions were institutions of ethnocide. And so for the native communities that went through there, the native peoples that went through these schools, those schools represent an extreme, like a loss of culture, the likes of which, right, are hardly recorded in history, right? The directed loss of culture that still reverberates through native communities today, if only we're speaking about the loss of language, right? If we just want to talk about it there, then we're talking about an immense, enormous, incalculable loss of culture. Add to it that we're talking about entire generations that were stolen from their homes, right? And didn't learn the ceremonies, didn't go through you know proper puberty rituals, didn't go through all these different things. We basically, as a country, created generations of lost native peoples, right? And we have a lot of atoning to do for that. But then when you talk to Native peoples, right, and talk to people that are involved with the Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition, right, these places are important so that it doesn't happen again, right? Sort of the same, the same reason why we keep other 
historical monuments available for public education so that we can learn and grow from them, right? These schools are perfect for that. And again, you know, it's just this, this um, really, it's representative of a, of a really tragic set of policies that were put into place that need to be remembered. It's interesting that you brought up the obliteration language because that was one of the, the definitive themes of George Orwell's 1984. By eliminating words, we eliminate concepts mm-hmm. that we can't imagine or think mm-hmm. of anymore. Absolutely. Yeah, double plus good. Yeah. Double plus good, ultra double bad. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. All right. I thank you for your time, Professor Seabach. My pleasure. Thank you. This was a great interview, and I believe we learned a lot about the Teller Institute today. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you, Forrest. All right. It was my pleasure. Forrest out.